Hey everybody, this is Brent Jensen. This week's episode is part one of a chat that I recently had with a guy named Chris Charlesworth. He's an English music journalist who used to be a writer for Melody Maker back in the 70s. And uh, he's got all kinds of unbelievable stories about hanging out with people like John Lennon, Led Zeppelin, The Who, and others. And so as a result of our chat being so long, I had to split it into two episodes. So this is part one of two. And tune in next week for the second half of the discussion. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And joining me today from England is Chris Charlesworth, a music journalist and author, and also the managing editor of Omnibus Press, the world's largest publisher of music-based books. Chris is also well-known for his work with The Who as an executive producer, and at Pete Townsend's request, he assembled and co-produced The Who's 30 Years of Maximum R&B Box Set. Chris has also written for the legendary music paper Melody Maker from 1970 to 1977, And during that time, he interviewed John Lennon, Paul McCartney, David Bowie, the members of Led Zeppelin, The Who, Rod Stewart, and the list goes on and on and on. Chris, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much for taking the time. Hi there, Brent. It's a pleasure. So, Chris, I've been looking forward to this chat because I know that you've got some incredible stories about some of the artists uh, that I named and and more. I've got your song list here, and I'm really excited to get into this. Good, good. That's that's great. I, I'm not strictly speaking the managing editor of Omnibus Press any longer. Okay. Well, I was for 33 years. I'm semi-retired now, and I'm a consultant to them, so they consult me. You know. Even better. It may sound like a bit like a doctor, doesn't it? You know, when they've got a sore throat, they come and consult me. <laughs> I say I have a bit of penicillin. Give <laughs> <laughs> me some antibiotics. I'm a consultant now. Very good. So, shall we get into your songs then? Yeah, yeah, where do we start? I've, uh, I know I sent you a list, uh, and uh, I can't really remember what was the first one there. Eh? So the first one was Elvis Presley and Mystery Train. Oh, yeah. Train arrived, 15, good. Yeah. <laughs> See, and, and I'm glad that you picked that one, because, you know, there are a lot of other probably more popular hits that you could have picked, but this is probably the one that means something to you, right? It means something to me because Elvis means something to me. And it was amongst the first Elvis songs I ever heard, of course. And I still think it's probably the best. (laughs) 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 That one and possibly Suspicious Minds, but I have another story about that. Um, Well, I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 Mm -hmm. when I first cottoned on to rock and roll. I was born in 1947, so... Uh, Elvis emerged about 56, didn't he? But it was about 57 when he first we first heard him in England. And uh, uh, Mystery Train wasn't the first song I heard. I think Heartbreak Hotel was the first. But then he, on his early albums, which, of course, I bought or pestered my mum and dad to buy me, Mystery Train was one of the tracks on them. And I thought, crikey, this is good. <laughs> and, um, and I never looked back. I, I had about, until I was about 13 or 14, I, I probably had about seven or eight Elvis albums, actually. And what was it like to, um, you know, I'm just thinking about Elvis on TV and, you know, people called him Elvis the pelvis and it was well, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, was, there, was, there was actually a lot more to Elvis in terms of social history than, than the music, although I didn't realize this at the time, of course. But Elvis opened up America 
didn't he? He uh, he had a massive influence on, on on the United States on on, on people's uh, you know ideas about their social life, probably their sex life as well. Yeah. And um, uh, until Elvis, of course, everything was very strict. You know, how much is that doggy in the window? You know, and uh, <laughs> I, I think there was wasn't there a, a cinema role that people who were. Uh, uh, in a bedroom, had to have their feet on the floor. Yeah. But even if they'd been married for 70 years, they could. They had to have their feet on the floor. Yeah, one foot on the floor, yeah. But Elvis kind of changed all that. Of course, a lot of people hated him for it. Possibly unwittingly. Uh, I don't think he meant to do it, but he just did. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned Suspicious Minds, and uh, I wrote a, a book. I don't know whether you heard about, about this uh, last year, a novel about Elvis Presley being kidnapped, and it was called Caught in a Trap. The opening line, this is... Uh, I, I maintain that Elvis was kidnapped in, in 1975 um, following a, a, a hospital stay. It's a mixture of fact and fiction, is this, of course. Okay. And the kidnapped went all the way up to the White House because it was such a, a big deal, of course. He was the most famous man in America. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the authorities would have been very embarrassed if, they, if it became known that Elvis had been kidnapped. But Elvis was ransomed and freed, and uh, no one heard a word about it until now, until my book came out last year. So... Uh, if anybody's interested, they can buy a book called Caught in a Trap, The Kidnapping of Elvis. So you can find it on Amazon. Caught in a Trap. I'll definitely look that up. I had no idea. It's, uh, probably no one in Canada probably heard it. It came out. It did okay in the UK here. Yeah. The first novel I'd ever written. It's the first time I had a crack at fiction. And uh, as I, I say, I, when I mentioned a moment ago that I was semi-retired, it's the first time I had a chance to to do anything like that, really, because I've been very busy for most of my life writing about music and, and running Omnibus. And even though I had the idea a long time ago, I didn't have the time to finish it until last year. I finally finished it. I had a lot of fun writing it, actually. It's, it, it's, uh, it's probably not the most serious thing I've ever done in my life, but it was just something I wanted to... <laughs> it was on my bucket list to write a novel about <laughs> Elvis being kidnapped, you know. The, the key thing, of course, is not the actual kidnapping. It's how Elvis interacts with his kidnappers because the Stockholm Syndrome sets in, if you know what that is. And Elvis talks about his life. And I imagine what Elvis might say in these circumstances to the people that kidnapped him, which includes the woman who's in love with him as well. But we won't go into too much detail about that. I will definitely be looking that up, sir. Uh, of all the people that I did see, and I saw just about everyone that it was worth seeing yeah. the, in the when I was at the you know the sharp end of it. But I never saw Elvis. I tried. I, I actually wrote a letter to Colonel Parkey's manager asking to do an interview when I was living in L.A. in 1973. I didn't even get a reply, which is no surprise. Uh, oddly enough, I I had tickets to see him. You know, he died on the eve of a tour just before he was due to fly up to Maine yeah. to do a show there. I think I think it was somewhere in, in the Northeast states. And um, that tour should have visited Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. And I was living in New York then uh, on on the way back. And I had tickets for that show. Of course, Elvis was long past his best by this time. I was finally going to see him. You know, he died on me. Jesus. <laughs> Do you do you still have that actual uh, ticket stub or the, t- the ticket itself? Um, no, I don't actually. I think I got a refund. <laughs> I wasn't given it. I, I should have. I, sh- I guess I should have kept it. Really, maybe they're valuable now. Oh, that would that would have been a terrific memento I, for sure. I know what I did do though. When I heard he died, I rang up a friend in Memphis and asked him to send me three copies of that day's Memphis newspaper it's called the memphis scimitar yeah and he sent me three copies of that day's paper 
And, and I still have two of them. I gave one away to a friend along the way, but uh, I've still got a couple of those. So, Chris, your next song here is by The Who, a band that you worked with extensively, and it's Substitute. Well, Substitute, I have a blog called Just Backdated, mm-hmm. which I think I may have sent you a link to. Yeah, I? Um, I read it. And Just Backdated, of course, is, is a lyric from Substitute. The Who were my favorite band, let's say. Uh, I, did, I didn't actually get to see them until 1969, mm-hmm. although I'd seen them on TV on Ready, Steady, Go, the... Uh, the famous, you know, legendary UK TV show that was on Friday nights. You know, the weekend starts here. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time I saw the Who was uh, was on that show in 1965. And I thought, crikey, you, you, you don't have to be cute to be a rock star. You, you know, they look great, and they, unlike just about every other group of the era. And it includes the Rolling Stones at that time. They, they didn't wear matching suits, you know. They didn't have yeah. ties. You know, the Beatles had ties on them. And even the Stones did, believe it or not, and the Kinks did. Everybody, they all looked the same, you know. But the Who looked different, and I thought, wow, this group's different. Because they were miming on Ready, Steady, Go. So I had no idea how good they were live until I finally got around to seeing them. But they always struck me as being an interesting band. And then, of course, I bought Can't Explain them, and I bought my generation, and I can see for miles of all those early singles. I thought, wow, this group's fantastic. But I, I, it wasn't until uh, 1969, the year before I joined Melody Maker, that I saw them for the first time at the Plumpton Festival. That's an outdoor festival here. And, and they were just fantastic, because they were doing Tommy then. And I thought, well, I felt my mind was blown, as they say. <laughs> and, uh, in many ways, it was that weekend when I went to that festival, I thought I wanted to get I want to be part of this. And so I finally landed the job on Melody Maker a year later. I'd already trained as a newspaper reporter, uh, like a regular newspaper reporter, reporting on car crashes and, you know, magistrates' courts and things like this. I sort of switched and uh, began writing about music. I went to see The Who again the following year. So I've seen them twice by the time I got the job on Melody Maker. So this this was the beginning of uh, what turned out to be a fairly long association with them. Of course, I was, you know, you've got to be objective when you're a newspaper reporter. Mm-hmm. But I learned that with The Who, you could be objective about them, and they still, and they didn't mind, unlike some acts that I encountered. And they appreciated constructive criticism, very open, very frank, very forthright in their views and opinions. They weren't, um, they were a PR's nightmare in terms of... Uh, what they said about each other as well as about the world in general. And I wound up seeing them 30-odd times over the next six years, which was absolutely fantastic. I went on the road with them. I I would see them, you know, three or four nights on the trot. And, you know, I was usually hanging about backstage with them and what have you. And uh, I got to know them really quite well. And um, when I left left Melody Maker, I... uh, I worked for a while for the for a company that handled their American affairs, and I came back to the UK. And when I joined Omnibus Press, I wrote a book about them for for Omnibus. And I I maintained my sort of relationship with them. It slipped a bit in the eighties, but the Who stopped working in the eighties, as you know. Yeah, I, I was a bit brought. I was very brought down by Keith Moon's death, and uh, and didn't go and see them for a while after that because I didn't think they would be the Who without him. And, there's an argument that says that's the case. But, um, but then I saw him again towards the end of the 80s, and I got back in touch with Pete, and I and I, I actually asked, I said, how come no one's done a box set with you guys? And uh, 
Pete said, I don't know, would you like to do it? And I said, yeah. I took charge of the, of the packaging for them, uh, commissioned the artwork, commissioned the text in the booklet, and decided, along with the producer, who happened to be Pete's brother-in-law, John Astley, on the sequencing of the CDs. And I researched a bit of unusual stuff to stick between the tracks. And it came out, and it did pretty good. And after it, after that, I, I worked on um, packaging the upgraded CDs from their back catalogue because the first round of Who CDs were dreadful. Uh, there was no attempt made to, uh, to improve the quality of the sound or to add anything to the package. So I commissioned the booklets and, the, again, the artwork through Richard Evans, who does most of the Who's graphics, and, and did most of their back catalogue for them as well. So I've had a great relationship with the Who over the years. I'll say this, that at their peak, and by that I mean around about 1970, 71, 72, 73, mm-hmm. that sort of top year and just past it, no band can touch them. Uh, for my money, and I saw them all around that time. No one could touch the Who on a good night. The Who were absolutely in a class of their own. You know, on a bad night, they were damn good. I was good for some <laughs> One of the things about the Who is that it's a, it's, it seems to be a forgotten art now, but they used to improvise a lot. And no one was quite sure. I don't think even Pete knew quite where a song might go. Some songs were structured, but other ones would last for a long time. And He'd, he'd spin them out, things like you know, summertime blues, and there was a kind of a, a sixth sense, I think, between Pete, Keith, and and John certainly. And Roger would wonder what's going on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd be out there bagging a tambourine, so I'd say, "Come on, get on with it! I want to sing again." You know? <laughs> <laughs> there was this wonderful unstructuredness about the performance, yet at the same time that they they had that extraordinary panache. And, and they were very physical as well, all apart from John. You know, Pete leaping around the stage like he did, spinning his arm, jumping up and down. Keith, wise cracking his arms and legs everywhere. Yeah. And the noise they made to me, there were only three instrumentalists in the Who and one singer. You, you, I could listen to the Rolling Stones, and, and they sounded thin, did the Rolling Stones, even though there was an extra guitarist. <laughs> the Who sounded like there were more people on stage than they were. I know that they beef themselves up with the synthesizers on songs like Fooled Again and Barbara O'Reilly, but, but mm-hmm. really the Who sounded like an orchestra. And a lot of that came from Keith Moon, I think. But it was that these sort of things don't last, regrettably. And I know towards 74, they lost some of the wind went out of their sails during the Quadrophenia tour. Yeah. Then they then they got back on good form, I think, for the last year or two, couple of years when Keith was, was playing with them. They were ungrateful in the last time I ever saw them with Keith, which was in Jacksonville in 1976. And then, you know, then it's, you know, they've continued. They're still going, of course, Roger, Roger and Pete are still going. Yeah. And it's not bad, it's not bad. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a great set they put on. And they still don't phone it in, as the expression goes. Pete still gives it a bit of stick on stage up there. He's not, uh, you know what I mean, he's not coasting. They, they never coasted, didn't they? And, and something I always liked about it was that when something goes wrong, it fires them up. And often I found when I was watching them a lot during the 70s, if there was an equipment malfunction or something like that, right? Yeah. Pete got really furious and angry about this. And for some reason or other, they stepped up a gear when something went wrong. And I used to think, oh, great, something's gone wrong. They kind of really lose their temper. And when they lost their temper, boy, you know, they just exploded on stage and were doing those. But anyway, I've got a lot of uh, 
happy memories about the Who, and I've been talking about it for too long, so I'd better shut up. <laughs> now, these are fantastic insights. Yeah, I, I, I still uh, I still work for them, and I still I do all the text on their website for them, and I update it every so often, every every year for them when they ring up and call me to ask. So I'm still in touch with them a bit. I took my son to see them in Hyde Park. Um, it's a big park in London, and it was. And Sam was really liked it. It was great taking my son to see them after all those shows. It was introduced him to Pete as well, which was nice. Substitute. What's the next one? I forgot now. Uh, the, the next one is uh, the Kinks Waterloo Sunset. Oh well, I, I don't have a lot of stories about the Kinks, uh, although I did interview Ray. Yeah, I've just chosen it because I love the song. If you're going to have a Kinks song in in your in your list, it's got to be Waterloo Sunset. Really, I think. We live out in the country now, and I commute to Waterloo Station, or I used to commute every day to Waterloo Station. Mm-hmm. And I used to walk back over the river. The song is about the Thames, of course. Yep. The bridge is a river, and Waterloo Bridge. And I used to see the sunset. It's uh, possibly the most beautiful song about London that uh, that came out of the 60s, I think. It's it's kind of enigmatic. Everybody says Terry meets Julie, and they thought that it was you know Julie Christie and Terry Stamp, who were mm-hmm. famous actors who were in a relationship, I think, at the time, both incredibly beautiful and handsome. <laughs> but uh, Ray's never confirmed that. I just love that descending melody line, and um, it really evokes London for me. This Waterloo sunset. My family when I, when I turned. Um, I think on a recent birthday, anyway, I'm not going to tell you my age. <laughs> a birthday, my my family, uh, my my son, daughter, and wife uh, took me to see the Kinks musical yep. here in London. They didn't tell me where we were going until we were outside the theatre. They kind of put a blindfold on me and led me down the street <laughs> after we had dinner somewhere. And it's, I can recommend the Kinks musical. It's called Sunny Afternoon. It was yeah. And uh, the, the climax to the musical it, uh, it is actually a scene which is set in the recording studio while they're working on Waterloo Sunset. And, and it's obviously imagined, is this, because the writers of the play were there. The Ray has, has actually, you know, cooperated. He's part of the production he is. Yep. And, um, and he's teaching the rest of the kids how to play the song. And his wife, Rasa, who does the, the backing vocals. And it's a really lovely scene, it is, because uh, you can hear the song put together and if it's it's the other kids didn't know what the words were yeah. and they were learning the melody you know ding 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 ding, ding, ding you know the melody ding ding, ding 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 all that they were learning that and Dave was playing that and what have you and it comes together during this sort of 10 minute scene just song and it's so beautiful at the end because the whole audience joins in <laughs> anyway that's Waterloo Sunset wow so your next one here is by the Beatles, and it's "Don't Let Me Down." Uh, yeah, again, this is uh, this is perhaps not the most obvious choice. Um, it was, I have to tell you the truth, it was either this or Long Tall Sally. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I picked this one, "Don't Let Me Down." This was the B side of "Get Back." It was yep. in this country anyway. I'm not sure whether it was in America. I believe it was here too. Yeah. Because it was the B side of the single, and I never bought this single because I bought the album, you know, a Let It Be album, and Get Back was on that. So by, by the time it came out, which was what, 69, 70, I wasn't really buying singles very much, especially if you got them on the LP. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it wasn't until I heard this on a jukebox in a pub in, in, in London around that time, and I thought, gosh, that's the best John scene. What's that song? That sounds really good. 
gradually over a period of time it became one of my favourite Beatles songs. It's just a, an absolutely fantastic song. It's a very simple song. There's only about three chords in it. It's it seems to be based a little bit, almost slightly Dylanish. I think it is. There's a, there's a, there's an emotion in it to John's voice. He's obviously singing it to Yoko, isn't he? And he's saying, "Oh, Yoko, don't let me down. You know, don't let me down." And, and it's very simple lyrics, too repetitive, but it's such a beautiful song. It is. Um, I would have loved to have seen you know John sing this live, but of course he never did. And it's just become one of my. One of my favourite Beatles songs, and I think it deserves more exposure than it, than it possibly gets. Yeah, it's been covered a little bit by people. There was, a, I think, Dillard and Clark. You know, uh, uh, the, the the country duo, the guy that was in the Birds. Yeah, and they did a version of it, which I have. I think I've got another version somewhere that someone did. It it, it really deserves more exposure than it does. It's just a a lovely, lovely song. Yeah. Of course, I. I got to know John quite well during my time on Melody Maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told him how much I liked this song, actually, once. <laughs> he just shrugged it off. But um, he was, I, I interviewed him three times for MM at some length, and, um, and I saw him socially a little bit. You see, I, I worked in New York for Melody Maker. I was their uh, American editor. Yep. from 1973 to, to 1977. And this was when John was living in New York as well. Though I first met him in L.A. when he'd fallen out with Yoko and he was living there in, in Malibu in that big house and making a bit of an ass of himself. Yeah. And um, and then I, I went to New York and he went back to New York and I saw him somewhere and he recognized me again. Oh, Chris, I love something. So I had a chat and everything. Like and I was very, very cheeky. I, I asked him for his phone number, which is unheard of, really. Yeah. But I thought he's a nice bloke. And I got on all right with him, probably because I come from the north of England and so did he. And he said he didn't know his phone number, but um, because Yoko dealt with the phones, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I mean, why should John Lennon know his phone number? You know what I mean? I'll bet I always didn't know his phone number anyway. Yeah. John said to me, he said, but if you send me a cable, this was in the, long before the days of faxes or emails, he said, if you send me a, a cable uh, with your phone number on it, with, with my number on it, uh, I'll phone you back if I'm in New York and I get the cable. He said, I promise I'll phone you back within 24 hours. Wow. And he was as good as his word. Oh, wow. And, um, well, so we talked on the phone uh, about his immigration situation. So he ring me up after I sent him the cable, and, he, and I pick up the phone, and he say, hello, it's Johnny Beetle here. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Beetle, that's what he used to call himself. And, uh, and I'd have a chat with him, and we, we met once, I think once we met at Capitol Records offices to talk about his, his rock and roll album. And then we met in, in the Plaza Hotel in the Oyster Bar there to talk about the... Uh, Whatever gets you through the night, that, that, that album. And as I say, I saw him every so often out about on the town, and, and so I, I got to know him quite well. And then when he finally got his green card, yeah, you know, the, so he could stay in America and not be hassled by Nixon and his gang of thugs. Um, <laughs> that then I, I went to watch him get his green card. I went, there was a hearing down at down in downtown Manhattan at some courtroom. Mm-hmm. It was a fait accompli. They knew they were going to give him the green card. Um, and everybody cheered when the judge said, Mr. Lennon, we're proud to have you staying with us in America, sort of thing. <laughs> you sure you should be. I said, all right. And then at one point in the hearing, I remember, I remember at one point in the hearing, uh, and this was probably a formality, someone said, uh, Mr., is Mr. Lennon likely to become a state charge? And I think that meant that will he seek 
welfare payments, you know. <laughs> Lenin's attorney stood up and said, it is unlikely that Mr. Lenin will seek welfare payments. <laughs> <laughs> Three properties in Manhattan, two in Florida, and one in upstate New York. <laughs> He's the composer of about one two hundred songs jointly with Paul McCartney, which earn an annual income. Blah blah blah. So, so this is unlikely that he was seeking help from the state. <laughs> Quite funny was that. We all giggled in the in the in the courtroom. And afterwards, I saw him on the street, and there was a lot of photographers around. And I said to him, have you ever seen a green card, an American green card, right? No, I haven't. They're actually blue, right? They're not green. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and John was holding it up. I said, you realise your green card's blue? Are you sure they've given you the right one? First <laughs> 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 time, he said, no, you're right. So, and that was the last time I ever saw him on the street uh, outside there holding his green card. So, oh, was, that, was that in 1980? No, no, no. That was, uh, that was 1976, I think. When okay. Or 75 or 76. And then I tried once more to send him one of my telegrams to, to, to interview him again because I wanted to ask him what he was going to do now that he could travel. Yeah. Because he, he, was, he was restricted from, from leaving America because he might not be able to get back in. That was the point. Mm. Uh, and he did travel extensively over the next few years. But, but he didn't ring me back this time. But he sent me a postcard saying, no comment was the stern reply. I'm invisible now. Chris, love John. I've still, <laughs> got, the, I've still got the postcard. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Wow. Still got that postcard. Those are incredible stories, Chris. Anyway, that's that's uh, that's, that's that's my Lennon stuff. Yeah. Wow. He was a great guy, was John. He, you know, he didn't suffer fools gladly, but he was great company. He was. Uh, yeah. He was very funny. He's very sharp-minded. He was very very sharp brain. He had. You know. Yeah. He never came back to England. You know, after 1971, I think it was when he went to live in New York. He never came back to the UK. Oh, he did. He went to Japan. He went to Japan a few times. Um, with Yoko to see Yoko's family. This is after he got his green card. I mean, but it, I, I, I don't think he, I don't, I, I, he never came back to Europe. He would have done. I'm sure he would have done sooner or later. Yeah. And not been senselessly assassinated by that idiot. But uh, mm. we won't get into that. No. Okay. What's the next one? Next one is Led Zeppelin Rock and Roll. My period on Melody Maker coincided with the rise and, and almost the fall of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I saw them for the first time in 1970. Though interestingly enough, before I before I joined Melody Maker, I worked on a on an evening newspaper in the north of England called the Bradford Telegraph. Mm-hmm. I used to write a pop page on this once a week. Okay. Me and another guy, we, we 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 had half a we were given half a page to write about you know rock and roll of pop news. And I got a call. It would have been the beginning of 1969 mm-hmm. from whoever was doing Led Zeppelin's PR. Uh, and they said, would you like to interview Jimmy Page on the phone? And I said, why would I want to do that? You know, and said, <laughs> well, he's just formed a new group called Led Zeppelin. We'll send you, we'll send you the album and we'll send you the, uh, a press release all about it. So they sent me this. And I spoke to Jimmy and John Paul Jones on the phone for about half an hour and talked to them. Of course, I had no idea what Led Zeppelin would become. Neither had they, of course. And I remember Jimmy telling me, he said something like, we're not going to release singles. And that was quite revolutionary for the time because every group 
released single. I said, why not? <laughs> and he says, because we're not like Herman's Hermits. <laughs> 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 I, I, you know, well, I've heard the record, actually. I've heard, you know, good times, bad times, communication, breakdown, all that. And I thought, no, you're not like Herman's Hermits. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and then a year later or so, it would have been the summer of 1970, the first summer I was there, they played the Bath Festival, which I covered for Melody Maker, me and a colleague. It was a big event, three-day event, dozens of bands on you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Led Zeppelin, by this time, had made a big name for themselves. Led Zeppelin's rise was very quick, from forming to becoming huge. It yep. only took them about 18 months. And they were headlining on the Sunday night on this festival. And, and, and they were colossal. They were already. And this was the first time I saw them. And I met them all backstage, and they were all very friendly. And... I, I didn't actually say to Jimmy, you know, I spoke to you a year or so ago. <laughs> but thereafter, I, uh, I saw them, I don't know, possibly 12 dozen times, maybe 15 times. Yep. And I had a few adventures with them. I never liked them as much as The Who. Mm-hmm. I didn't get on with them as well uh, as people as I did with The Who, and I preferred The Who's music. Robert Plant was was a really lovely guy. I I always got on very well with him, but the others could be a bit standoffish. And the big difference was that they couldn't take uh, any any form of criticism. Ah. The Who, as I say, were, you know, slings and arrows sort of thing with The Who, no problem. But if you ever hinted that Led Zeppelin weren't the greatest band ever in the whole world, then they came crashing down on you uh, and could be quite unpleasant. Anyway, um, but I had some I had some good times with them. In 1971, I, I I went to Montreux in Switzerland with them. And what Led Zeppelin used to do before they did a big U.S. tour is they'd do a couple of small shows somewhere, which were which were kind of secret or or not, not in big places to iron out the kinks in any new numbers, like dress rehearsals for yeah. plays, theatre, yeah. you know that sort of thing. And I was invited to Montreux to watch them for two straight nights in a hall that held about 1,500 people. Mm-hmm. And this was in this was in the autumn of 71. It must have been because it was the first time I, this time I heard them play Stay Away to Heaven, actually. And it was brilliant watching them in this small hall with these, only if the Swiss fans were there to watch them, you know, from Montreux. Mm-hmm. And I, I watched them rehearse in the afternoon. It was Saturday, so Friday and Saturday, I think, I was there with them. And I watched and on a Saturday afternoon, they were just playing amongst themselves, you know, just playing and rehearsing and practicing. I think Jimmy was testing out some new equipment as well, that sort of thing, you know. So they mm-hmm. were just fooling around, really. Uh, and they started playing Elvis songs. Oh. And they, for about 20 minutes, they did a non-stop sort of all shook up, heartbreak hotel, mystery train. Wow. That sort of, right. Uh, they played all these Elvis songs back to back they did and they were absolutely fantastic they were because Paige was imitating Scotty Moore you know and James Burton that kind of guitar playing wow and Jones had had an electric stand up uh, bass so he's and and Bonzo was doing rim shots you know like J.D. Fontana does on Elvis things and sometimes even used right, and, and, and Percy Plant was was imitating Elvis. So, woo, woo, woo. Wow! <laughs> his best Elvis impersonation, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was absolutely brilliant. I, I just stood there. I was amazed. I wish I'd taped it. I really do. Yeah, I wonder if there are any soundboard tapes of that. I know. No. Well, it was, I don't think he. I don't think um, the, the, there was a mixing guy there, but I don't think it was. 
No one taped it. No one recorded it. Mm. Um, such a great show. And afterwards, at the end of it, I said, how would you guys like to do that and play at my wedding? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking of getting married. I wasn't thinking of getting married. And, and you know their manager, Peter Grant, was yeah. fierce in the business, right? And I was quite friendly with him. Peter Grant... Peter Grant came up to me and said, you'll fucking cost you, Charles. He said, you won't let Zeppelin your bloody wedding. You'll bloody pay for him. <laughs> Very funny it was. Right? So, so I did have some good times with them. Travelled around America with them on their plane, which was uh, which was a bit hairy, to say the least. Oh, I, even okay. had a cab, I even had a go in the cockpit once between Chicago and uh, Denver, I think. Wow. <laughs> but they all had a go, you know, <laughs> So they came up to me and said, do you want to fly? As I got a load of the joystick and I took Led Zeppelin up a few thousand feet and brought them down again. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, everybody got drunk on it. and They had a keyboard on it and Jones used to play and everybody used to sing along Beatles songs and all everything. Wow. But, uh, yeah, but uh, I think Led Zeppelin in many ways, they were a bit like Icarus, weren't they? They, they flew too high and it all came tumbling down somehow. Yeah, um, but but when they were on the way up, they were they were fantastic, absolutely fantastic rock and roll group. Okay, and a big rock and roll. I thought this was a, one of the really truly great songs. Was this that uh, that, that that drum introduction? I think uh, I think Bonzo ripped it off a little Richard song. Was it Kukoli Miss Molly or, or, or yeah. something? Yeah, uh, one of those early Little Richard songs. It's the same drum pattern, isn't it? But it's yep. a great riff, and it's 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 short. So I think it's Led Zeppelin at their very best is. Is this. I was going to ask you a very quick question. Where yeah. do you think their apex was creatively? Oh, um, uh, uh, physical graffiti, I think. Uh, it's a yeah. toss-up, you know. It's a toss-up. That's all the fourth album. I think there's a bit of a dip on Houses of the Holy. It was a bit. I always yeah. loved the Rain song. I don't know about you. I thought, you know, if you're going to go for a slow one, I thought the Rain song was better than Stairway, which is... Oh, me too. ...overexposure now, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, but the Rain song was really lovely. And when they played it live... It's a difficult song to play that on the guitar. I play a bit of guitar, but and I yeah. know how hard it is with different tunings and, and to get those ringing strings and ringing chords like that. And uh, I saw Paige do it a few times, uh, and I thought, "By gum, he can't half play that boy." You know? <laughs> 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 but I, 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 but as a, as a, as a, as a cohesive album, the fourth album is probably the best. And I, I, I also love the uh, what's the final track called the uh, when the levee breaks. Is is yes. that's absolutely terrific? Is that that's their very best as well. Oh um, yeah. I, I could have picked that to play uh, the, the, the drum sound on that and the, the sheer force of, of it's like a tank coming over a hill is that one is <laughs> alright that concludes part one of my chat with Mr. Chris Charlesworth tune in next week for the second and final installment of the chat till then take good care folks Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suffering, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.